Hello! Welcome to the Blah Blah Blah's Matter edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, which was the week of Davos. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. And also by Anna Jemansky. Hello. And yeah, we're going to have fun today. We're going to have a contentious discussion about billionaires, whether they're good or whether they're bad. We're going to talk about France and its colonial currency ways. We're going to talk about Microsoft and its paternalist attempts to construct affordable housing in Seattle. We're going to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We're going to talk about Emmanuel Saez. We're going to talk about Elizabeth Warren. We're going to talk about wealth taxes. We're going to talk about why are there two different CFA francs which are worth exactly the same <laughs> amount of money? If you do know that, please let us know on Slate Money at Slate.com because none of us have been able to work that one out. It's going to be a rip-roarer of an episode, so stay tuned for all of this on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I am very happy this week because I am not in Davos right now. I, I get to hang out in a warm studio in Brooklyn and not have to schlep all the way to Switzerland. And so for the first time in a long time, we are doing a Davos episode without anyone in Davos, which makes it great for us to take a step back and say the most important person in Davos is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who isn't even there. Dun, dun, dun. I'm kind of into this. Like, you're, she's having more impact on Davos than just about anyone. Um, the person I should say who is having the most impact on Davos is probably that evil Bolsonaro guy from Brazil. And so it's another good reason to not be there. You don't need to wind up inadvertently getting In a photo op with Jair Bolsonaro. Having, should... having like lunch with Jair Bolsonaro and with, you know, if you're Tim Cook or Sachin Adela. Uh, should we pull back and just say we're talking about the World Economic Forum, which happens every year in Davos, Switzerland, to which the Felix... The richest and most famous people in the world. That, well, not the most famous, but the most powerful. And the most money. Including people like the CEOs of the biggest companies in the world, who would be Tim Cook and Sachin Nadella, who get invited to sit at the top table by Klaus Schwab, who runs the entire thing with an iron fist, and who lobs softball questions at Bolsonaro, and who like tells him about how he's transforming the future of Brazil 
And they all have to just kind of sit there and grin and pretend that he's not a fascist. And this year, um, like last year, Donald Trump went, but this year, fewer U.S. people were there. No U.S. people. No U.S. people were there. So Bolsonaro and um, Russian peeps and um, Saudi Arabian peeps sort of had the had the presence this year. Had the run of the place. Had the run of the place, which is pretty disturbing. Yeah, the. Macron and May are both also gone. out dealing yeah. with domestic mm-hmm. crises. Yeah. It's it's really kind of a terrible uh, signal. It's kind of B-list Davos. Yeah, like letting the real dictators and plutocrats just wa- run wild, basically, in Switzerland. And meanwhile, the the agenda is being set not atop a Swiss Alp, but rather in Congress with one member of the House and one member of the Senate, we have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the House saying, hey, why not have a 70% marginal tax rate on incomes over $10 million? We have Elizabeth Warren in the Senate saying, why not have a 2% wealth tax on wealth over $50 million and maybe even 3% over a billion dollars? And all of this would actually be the first policies that I can remember which would take a real stab at addressing what the World Economic Forum has always said is the number one or one of the top um, issues facing the world, which is inequality. But would they? Well, wouldn't they? I would argue that these policies all come from academic theory. There's one particular paper, this Diamond de Saez um, report that all of these people are referencing and arguing that, like, look, we have proof that you know this is the optimal tax rate of course the problem with that argument is that there are many many other models no, but let's, let's, but, no, let's, let's point, wait wait no. can you, wait let's, let's re- rewind and just answer the question like instead okay. of go, okay yeah so my, my point is just that what i'm just saying is we have academic models to create this argument then we have empirical evidence of other countries that have tried these policies we can look at what happened in france as when they instituted their wealth tax which did not reduce inequality. It did. It actually like limited growth. It limited investment. It hurt the pretty much the entire population. We also had wait, okay, Sweden wait, that got wait, rid of its wait, wealth wait, tax oh, right, and right, its right, estate wait, tax. Okay. No, no, but okay. Let me jump in here and say this is a bad analogy. We have exactly one example of America doing this, which you know it had high marginal tax rates. Um, you know, up in the nineties at one point. Um, without any obvious deleterious effects, and the main reason why high marginal tax rates, both on tax, both on income and on wealth, don't work in places like France and Sweden, is that all you need to do to get out of them is leave the country. And so what you get is Gerard Depardieu types who have lots of wealth or income just moving out of France to some low tax jurisdiction, whether it's Russia or Monaco or somewhere else, and then. You don't get any tax revenue. No. That is not a worry in the U.S. That's entirely a worry in the U.S. Let's look at the period you're talking about, because the period you're talking about, A, almost no one paid those taxes. B, most of the very wealthiest people in the United States during that period actually paid a lower marginal tax rate than we currently have because of all the different loopholes. So I'm sorry, but I would say that if you look at American billionaires and say, do you really think they're not going to be able to find ways around these? Of course, they're going to be able to. Yes. I think I think before we get into the weeds arguing like, is the wealth tax going to work? Is 70% marginal tax rate on the wealthy going to work? We should acknowledge that 
these proposals are part of a bigger wave of sort of progressive and populist taxation ideas, policy ideas, regulation ideas meant to reduce the amount of inequality in the United States, which has gotten a bit out of hand since at least since the 80s when Ronald Reagan really slashed um, the marginal tax rates. And, and you can argue that that wasn't just, why yeah, inequality yeah. got out of hand. It was, but it certainly didn't help. I mean, and, and, also and, we should, and you wait, and we also have to jump in and say that the at least the AOC proposal is just one very small part of a much bigger thing called the Green New Deal, which we will talk about in a future podcast. It's, it's not designed to stand on its own. Right. I mean, the economists I spoke to this week, um, granted most of them are progressive economists, um, they see this, and I think a lot of people see this, as um, it's a signal, it's a starting point. No one thinks that just doing the 70% marginal tax rate is going to cut it. There are other measures you can take that might be more effective, like instead of getting rid of um, – and the wealth tax could be raised, for example, instead of – What you mean the inheritance tax? The inheritance tax. Yes, yeah, sorry. The inherit- the death tax um, <laughs> could be raised. Um, you could raise the limit uh, – payroll taxes. High-income earners don't pay payroll taxes. It's the most regressive well, they, they bullshit do. They there just, is. They stop at a certain level. They, yeah. And the they level is, is – If you're making $10 million a year, you're not paying I mean, the level is to $120,000 yeah. no, a year. It's actually – I think actually would be – and I think it would actually be an extremely effective way of taxing high-income earners more effective than AOC's idea, although less um, rhetorically powerful. I think what's really interesting now is this turn that Felix was talking about, which is that people are sort of fed up with what is a lie. And the lie is that if you raise taxes on high-income earners, it's going to hurt all of us. And that's just – that's not true. Well, depend. I mean, I, to a certain extent, agree with you. To a certain extent. And I... wait, and one last thing. The U.S. has gone so far in the other direction, r- lowering taxes on high income earners and companies so low that like to say like, well, we don't know if we take it up too high, we could be like Sweden. Like we are not in that place. Like it, we're so far off from the from the Gerard Depardieu's leaving that it's it's laughable to I think to bring it up as even um, a plausible argument. Like the argument we should be having is what's the most effective way to reduce inequality in the United States, which has gotten out of control and has really destabilized the country. And not only in the United States, but also in the world, since, you know, this is in the context of Davos, we have, uh, you know, the the annual Oxfam report, which for the past two years has been really good, um, came out and talked about how the world's billionaires, you know, an extra what nine billion nine trillion dollars got added to their wealth in one year they were adding wealth at the rate of two and a half billion dollars a day and they don't need that wealth and there's a bunch of people on the planet who do and so clearly and and plus inequality just in and of itself is a bad thing and so you need some kind of mechanism for redistribution i mean you know Anna doesn't believe that inequality is bad but there's well, a whole bunch of evidence which shows i'm that not it saying is. that i don't believe that inequality is my point is i don't think inequality is inherently bad i think inequality to a certain level can be bad inequality is actually just part of a vibrant capitalist system you need inequality now when you have so much concentration of wealth that you actually have people who can alter policy and protect protect their market share and engage in crony capitalism yes that's a problem and yes that is currently a problem and one of the i mean one of the reasons i like the idea of a wealth tax is that it really does 
it's kind of agnostic as to how you made your money. And it's just like, well, if you're that rich, and this is something which AOC was saying on Martin Luther King Day, you know, it's not that billionaires are bad people. It's just that the, any kind of system which allows any one individual to accumulate that level of wealth is a broken system. And what you want to do is intervene in that system to try and redistribute at some level. Well, I I disagree a little bit with the idea that if you have extremely wealthy people, that in itself is a horrible thing. I don't think there's much evidence for that. I there's think there's a you, lot of evidence. Well, if it. you actually look at a number of countries that you know they were they were very equal and pretty much everyone was poor, <laughs> and then well, guess what? When you have a tremendous amount of economic development, you end up creating billionaires. Yes, but you also end up creating a lot of wealth for other people because you know, that's not wealth isn't just like one small thing that we're all taking a part of. You know, what was really interesting, um, Zuckman and Saez, who are like the most cited liberal economists behind this idea of a wealth tax, um, and they're advising Elizabeth Warren, they had a column in the in the New York Times that I thought was really good. It was about how this all this talk, it's not about bashing billionaires, billionaires are good or bad. Um it's about living in a more equitable society. But the point I wanted to get to about that column is they had this really, I thought, interesting example of how the U.S. used to lead the world when it came to this kind of progressive taxation. As Felix mentioned, it used to the rate used to be 90 percent at one point, 70 percent marginal tax rate. And um, some people say, well, during that period, the U.S. was like the most powerful country in the world, yada, yada, yada. But getting to my point, stay with me. Um, the U.S. helped rebuild Japan after World War II, and Japan kind of modeled itself on the United States. And they did the same high tax rate for their super rich people, and they prospered. And then Zuckman and Saez— really well now. Zuckman and Saez then point to Russia, which we helped rebuild in the early 90s, you know, after communism went away and blah, blah, blah. And they, again, modeled themselves on America and had low tax rates on the rich people. And then look what happened there. Bad things— Plutocrats rushed in, took all the money. I, I thought it was an interesting argument. Yeah, you I'm could sure also look at the explain. early development of the United States in the second half of the 19th century, which was probably the period where you had the greatest amount of wealth creation and improvement of people's lives in almost history. And we essentially had no income tax. I'm not arguing for that. I'm just saying but that- But we didn't have any- um Social any good, welfare. any social welfare. Yeah, Thank I mean you. That, we that, had extreme... that, that ended with the Great Depression. The, I... That's didn't. No, wait a second. No, like, like, let's <laughs> let's just be clear that the Industrial Revolution, although yes, it was very important that we did have a pushback later to try to get more safeties and a little bit more of a safety, like labor protections and more of a safety net. And I'm not disagreeing with the fact that we should perhaps have additional taxation in ways that we can then use that money more effectively. I'm not saying that that inherently is a horrible idea. I I just think that a lot of the discussion around this, like we can say blah, blah, blah throughout like massive parts of history, but actually those, the blah, blah, blahs matter. No, but the blah, blah, blahs do matter. And what, <laughs> and what we're saying, no, these really do matter. And what Emily is saying is very important, which is that it is absolutely possible. And if you look at the United States or Japan or Germany, in the post-war era, in the you know 50s and 60s, when there was astonishing growth and wealth creation, there's no, there's absolutely no sense in which that kind of growth and wealth creation um, needs to create a large number of billionaires. It just didn't during those years, and it doesn't create a, a, a large amount of inequality. It doesn't need. It's not like 
any kind of economic growth has to include billionaires, otherwise it doesn't work. We have a counterexample, and it's a positive counterexample, and it is always associated with high levels of marginal taxation. And that's a useful correlation to bear in mind. I was thinking, too, of Jack Bogle, who we discussed last week, who could have been a billionaire but was not a billionaire and was perfectly fine. He was very rich. He did well. He did well for his investors. Like, there's no downside to him not being a billionaire. I I don't see an upside to anyone being a billionaire. And and let's just talk about the billionaires in Davos in particular, most of whom have signed this glorious thing called the Giving Pledge, where they're going around saying that they're going to give away 50, 90, 95% of their wealth. And you're like... Okay, there you go. If you're happy giving away that much of your money, why are you not happy? Oh, I'll tell you why you're not happy. Because if I, I'm not a billionaire, probably will never be a billionaire, almost certainly. Um, But if you're saying, well, I have a tremendous amount of wealth, well, what can I do? I could perhaps try to use it to actually effectively help the poorest people in the world, or I can pay it in taxes so it can be redistributed to upper middle class old people, which is what is currently happening. So I think this is my only critique sometimes when we start to talk about redistribution. I, As I said, I am not calling for low tax rates on the wealthy. I, I think it sounds should, like you are. No, I'm not. I, <laughs> so what do you think the optimal marginal tax rate on incomes over $10 million should be? I see this is where I, I think just like plugging in a number and saying it, it I, like anything else, it depends. I mean, I think I mean, I think we could probably go a little higher than we are now. I think you could probably be around like closer to 50 percent. And I that's what think, Dean Baker said. Yeah, I, I'm like, I'm not as I've said, like, I'm not <laughs> I'm not someone who's saying that left. we shouldn't try to have more tax revenue and from people who in many ways probably can afford it. My issue, though, on the other side is that it's OK. But then how is the government actually using that money? And I think this is an area where sometimes on the left, there's this idea that we are going to have this perfect technocratic government that's going to be able to use all this money very efficiently. I don't think we have a tremendous amount of evidence that that would be the case. No, I think I think that's fair that governments, especially the U.S. government in recent decades, has done an extraordinarily bad job of spending money on the poor, largely because poor people don't vote. And so they get ignored in fiscal policy. And that's dreadful. And that's another flip side of the Green New Deal, which we will talk about in some coming uh, episode of Slate Money. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. But while we're on the topic of international colonialism. Let's talk about the CFA (laughs) thing. Well, you know, we were talking about the benign form of Marshall Plan colonialism, where you just export your economic model to Japan and Germany, and then they thrive. Um, This was also, I think, kind of, maybe, perhaps, somewhere in the mind of the French when they um, decolonized Africa and left most of their former colonies with the French franc or the CFA franc as it became um, after the war. And now, weirdly, thanks to some Italian politician 
The CFA, Frank, is being blamed for migration and all manner of ills. And it's a, and it's in the news, which is great, because the CFA, Frank, is a really weird and wonderful and wonky kind of thing. And we've never talked about it on Slate Money. So this gives us the opportunity to talk about it. Anna, why is it in the news? So the deputy prime minister of Italy came out and was saying it was attacking France and Macron and saying... Well, the migration problem is really because of poverty in Africa, which is being caused by French currency policies. And so you shouldn't complain that we won't allow these boats to dock in Italy. It's all your fault. And although although he is completely wrong (laughs) about this being the cause of migration from Africa, he's not wrong that the CFA Frank is a very dubious thing. I mean, it is a very... Controversial currency regime because, on the one hand, you can make the argument and this okay. Is, so wait, let's slow argument. down and say what the CFA Frank okay, so, is. The first thing is is it's what like fifteen countries something like that. Yes, and there there's are two different. So there are, okay, so yeah, there are fourteen countries. There's um, it's eight and five, and you have both yeah, there, in West Africa and you have Central Africa. Yes. And, and the thing which I love about this, it's the most French thing ever is there's a West African CFA franc, there's a Central African CFA franc, and they're worth exactly the same, Yeah, that was but they're not interchangeable. And it's like, huh? Yes. Actually, wait. And can we also say, I think I it, it's 14 and it's 8 and 6. Sorry, because oh, yeah. I think there I again. used the wrong numbers. So just make sure I might, I, people don't think I can't count to 14. So, because <laughs> um, people will write in and say, Anna can't count to 14. Um, so, uh, yes. Now, although actually the lack of inter... Um, convertibility is one of the many problems with this currency regime. So, like on the one hand, you can make the argument, and there is some evidence that, well, there actually is a lot of evidence that it has kept inflation down, unsurprisingly. So, yeah, just to rewind a little bit again, what what this CFA franc is, is basically, to all intents and purposes, the currency in most of Western Central Africa, basically all of Francophone Africa, is the franc, or now the euro. And much like if you go to Ecuador or Belize, it's the dollar. Um, you know, they don't have their own currency. Well, they are pegged to a big major international currency, either the dollar or the euro. And they have no control over their own monetary policy. They just have to let the European Central Bank do what it's going to do. Yeah. And it's and this is actually a problem because they doubly don't have control over their own monetary policy. Because on the one hand, you have a number of countries that have are actually at different stages of development and have very different economies based on resources and other things. So... Just and then they probably shouldn't all have the same monetary policy. And then you tack on the fact that they're essentially being um, hemmed in by the monetary policy of the European Central Bank. Like that doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense because does it make sense for developing nations to be having the same concerns as France and Germany? So no. this goes back, but, but this is so know, the, this, the, this is known as dollarization as well. Like you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when. Um, Argentina was pegged one to one to the dollar. You know, Ecuador has gone so far as to basically give up a domestic currency entirely and just use dollars. Um, you know, Brazil is pegged two to one to the dollar, and all of these things are basically it. They come out of desperation a lot of the time. Like if you have a history of hyperinflation and you don't trust your own currency, then you're like, okay, we can't be trusted with our own currency. We're just going to use someone else's because we know that the euro is stable. Or the but they're not using euros. They're using CFA francs, which there's some differences yeah, there that are, well, I thought were a little interesting. Weird, yeah. Weird. So basically the difference between the CFA franc and the euro is that 
the French rather than the Europeans get the seniorage. Mm-hmm. Um, they guarantee it. And so then they also hold they 50% the money, of yeah. the, the reserves. reserves of these countries. And they pay a lower interest rate on that money. Oh, well, that was... A, uh, <laughs> no? I, yeah, it's just, I think, well, I think that was not the greatest argument. I know the argument you're pulling up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so what you have is... Um, this very paternalistic thing. So it's up to the French. It's up to the French Treasury to determine whether and when the CFA franc should ever be devalued. It was last devalued, I think, in 1994. Yeah. Um, weirdly, immediately after the war, it was revalued twice in, I think, 1945 and then in 1948 or something like that. Um, it actually got stronger against the franc. The French domestic franc devalued and they didn't devalue the huh. CFA franc. Um, since then, it's been devalued a couple of times. But that is entirely at the whim of the French treasury. And the actual African countries have very little control over that. That was my question. So this Italian, the Italian guy is upset about this, because he's using it as a way to explain away his racism, essentially. Um, but how do the people in these countries feel about is there any movement in those countries to go to their own currency it's, or back away from the CFA franc in any way? It's controversial and it's controversial for a number of reasons. And partly you could argue that, well, many of these countries, when they became independent, decided to keep this. They have mm-hmm. continued to decide to keep it. But the problem with that is that this regime actually it, it really benefits elites, makes it much easier to move money back and forth. It doesn't necessarily always benefit everyone else. And the elites tend to be the people in power. So that's a question of whether, like, when you're saying, how do these countries feel? Well, Mm. very different, depending Mm -hmm. on who you're talking to. Um, So, like, the the Wikipedia page on the CFA Frank is fantastic, and I can highly recommend it for anyone wanting to nerd out. But to answer your question, like, people have been leaving and joining both. Like, there's two-way flow. So in 1960, Guinea left... In 1962, Mali left. In 1973, Madagascar left. But then more recently, Mali came back in 1984. Equatorial Guinea joined in 1985. Guinea-Bissau joined in 1997. So, like, it's a two-way flow. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing which fascinates me the most about this is that the one thing that everyone used to say about the euro, like why we're introducing the euro and having a single currency in Europe, and... Is is you know it'll make trading much easier. You don't need to worry about currency FX stuff. Um, and there's absolutely no evidence that having 14 countries um, all having the same currency has actually improved trade between those countries or trade between those countries in Europe at all. No, in fact, there's quite the opposite. I mean, trade between African countries is actually an issue throughout Africa, re- regardless of this. But if you actually look, I mean, if you look at exports to Europe in terms of the percentage that these countries were, you know, say 20 years ago and the percentage now, they're actually quite less. And part of the reason for that is because when you had the really, really strong euro, like in the 2000s, that really hurt a lot of these countries because it made their exports less competitive. And so they were replaced by exports of countries with with less valuable currency, like, I don't know, China. So, Or even other African countries. Yes. So overall, it's not been good for these countries? It's a mix. I mean, it depends on what you're talking about, because you could say the, the Cote d'Ivoire que- has done fairly okay. Yeah. The, the question is really like, there, there are two questions. One is, um, who has benefited? And I think that Anna is right that it's mostly the elites who have benefited from this. But then the other question is, what's the alternative? Right. And if the alternative is a 
cronyist central bank, which, you know, steals a whole bunch of money for itself and immiserates the population through infl- hyperinflation, that's not obviously better. Well, two things. So overall, there's more stability this way, perhaps. I would say that I I agree that I don't think that it makes sense to just like in one day be like, okay, new currency. But I do think you could start to have transitional measures, like say, instead of being pegged just to the euro, be pegged to a basket of currency. So then you're not as affected by the movement of just one currency. It gives you a little bit more flexibility in monetary policy. You could reduce the power that the French currently have, like that officials have to be on the boards of the you know central banks in all of these countries. I, I think that those are measures. You could also the the use of FX reserves. That's another issue because right now you just all oh, these FX reserves sitting in France that could probably be used a little bit more efficiently in these countries. So, so I think yeah, I think the one thing which makes eminent sense, at least to me, is that the countries concerned should own their own monetary policy. They shouldn't be outsourcing it to France. They it, like the decisions about the value of the CFA franc and what it's pegged to should be made in Africa by Africans rather than in Paris by French Treasury officials. And I just like last I thought it was somewhat ironic that you have this argument between France and Italy about the policy towards Africa and like nobody's so asking anyone in Africa what they think. It's really patronizing. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there was a bunch, no, I mean, a bunch of like local African <laughs> finance ministers were asked about this, and they will generally defend their monetary regime. Like they all have every country in the currency union has the right to leave it at any time, and so the fact that they don't leave is some kind of evidence that they don't want to leave. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so enough about French paternalism. Let's talk about corporate paternalism. <laughs> nice. Um, what what has Satya Nadella done except for have lunch with the president of Brazil? <laughs> well, back in Seattle, where Microsoft is based, um, the company has decided to give, and we'll get back to that word, give $500 million um, to help fight Seattle's really terrible homeless um, problem. The city is the eighth largest city in the country, but it has the third largest population of homeless people. So the $500 would include like, I think it's- $500 million. I'm sorry, 500. (laughs) There's 500 bucks. (laughs) Get going, Seattle. Um, No, it's $500 million and it would include 25 million, which is like a straight up donation. Um, And then the rest is going to be like a a mishmash of uh, loaning money essentially. To, but for low income es- essentially, yeah, what would what the idea is that if you have a city with unaffordable housing, the one of the best things you can do in that city is to spend some money to build affordable housing, yes. which is new and additional and extra on top of the existing housing stock. Um, and Microsoft is throwing some money at this and it may or may not work, but it's maybe worth a try. Yeah, I mean, um, 
I think what I've been reading, there's consensus that it will help. And Seattle has a problem and it does need help. But I think in the bigger picture, it's like maybe Seattle and Washington State need to get off their their tushies and actually solve this problem in a bigger way. Um, For example, the state has no state income tax. They could charge a little income tax. They could get more money than Microsoft is giving and look to more holistic solutions. And and the like real what? and the re- well the big the big way to solve this well it doesn't solve the problem one of the big ways you address this problem is just through zoning that you upzone large chunks of your city for multifamily high mm-hmm. density housing densification and one of the facts that's always and everywhere true about housing basically is that rich people wind up spending you know, many more square feet per person. They 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 have they buy lots of space for themselves compared to poor people who are more crowded. And so, if you zone a city for high density and lots of people per square foot, then that's going to help in terms of bringing the you know working classes back into the city center. Yeah, and I think this is a good idea for many reasons. Obviously, I think ethically, you would like to have more housing for more people. But also, like, there are many, many studies that show that if we could actually have enough housing to support the number of people who want to move to a lot of these centers of wealth, it would really help with GDP growth. Mm -hmm. It could potentially help with productivity growth. So I I think that this isn't just like a kind of, you know, like liberal fantasy thing. Like, I think from from almost any side, this makes a lot of sense. Oh, I said Seattle was the eighth largest city, but it's the 18th largest city. 18th largest city. Seattle's the 18th largest city with the third largest homeless population. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like, it's amazing how many cities in America are bigger than Seattle, including places like Nashville. Right, right. Exactly. Um, But the home, I mean, third largest homeless population. Nashville has better weather than Seattle. Yeah, it's actually strange, isn't it? (laughs) Um, but Nashville does not have an out-of-control property market. You know, Seattle is one of those cities where housing has just become unaffordable. And everywhere that you find um, unaffordable housing, you also find very convoluted zoning laws and building restrictions, which prevent developers from just throwing up the amount of building that the market is demanding. And I really think this conversation about housing, just to go back to my point about the tax thing, um, really goes back to our first conversation, which is that Seattle and Washington State seems to have sort of abdicated its role in this. And now Microsoft is filling filling the the void, but it's not it's not going to be enough. I just feel like that's can't be said kind of enough that right. this isn't a problem that the private sector can solve. That, that's own. that said, Lee, the I mean, I think the private sector can do, do a, a lot. lot. Yes, I think but, this will help. But yes. I do think that the private sector left to its own devices will almost invariably wind up by building luxury high-end housing rather than more low-end affordable housing. Um, that's just It just seems to be where all of the economic incentives are. So you do want the government to come in and encourage aff- investment in affordable housing in particular because – Building a bunch of expensive apartments will 
you know, it, it might at the margin like reduce the growth of property prices, but it's not really going, it's not going to make the city more affordable for normal people. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I, and also, if you look right now, I mean, you have land costs are higher, labor costs are higher, materials costs are higher, and also the value of tax credits, which is actually how affordable housing is, is actually financed traditionally, are worth less now because of the tax cuts. So, we really do need to do things to actually incentivize people because it's not going to make a lot of sense otherwise for people to build this type of housing. So, Anna, as the, as the great free marketer here, what's your idea for what's the best way to incentivize the building of low-income housing? I am not a policy expert, so I'm, I, I'm probably not going to be able to come up with an excellent um, answer to this on the spot. I mean, I think the use of tax credits can work, but then you have to figure out a better way to do it because, as I've said, they're not worth quite as much as we're also I do think we should have more land taxes as opposed to property taxes to just encourage development itself because right now the way it works that you can sometimes just encourage people to just like not actually do anything on the land they own so that's a separate issue how Fred Trump bless him president's dad he made his fortune building low income and housing essentially in middle income housing um, in, with in tax like credits government subsidies yeah. with yeah. government subsidies yeah. and tax credits so that worked out really well um, it I'm not out for him super familiar with the details of of that policy but it seemed to work no it totally worked and I mean and you he can, used you can go it back in down nefarious, all, all the way back yeah, I mean, to you like can Levittown. use credits you can use subsidies yeah Levittown. you just want to make sure that you're Levittown. actually getting the outcome you want let's have a numbers round <laughs> <laughs> We should have a numbers round. My, I have a number. I, I was this. This is a weird one. Nine percent um, is the chargeback rate on Angry Birds and other like um, popular video games among small children. Most things which you buy with credit cards. Um, have about a 0.5% chargeback rate. That's normal that, you know, people buy a bunch of stuff and then every so often they'll go back to their credit card and they'll, they'll see something on their credit card bill and they say, I didn't buy that. What is this? And they'll complain to the credit card company and the credit card company will refund their money. And that comes on in aggregate to about 0.5%. For Facebook games, it was 9%. Wow. They knew and they had enormous amounts of documentation that kids were spending sometimes thousands of dollars in these video games um, because they specifically set it up that it would automatically just hit their parents' credit card and you didn't need to re-enter the number and you didn't need to do anything to make it clear that you were authorizing this actual cash expenditure. And the parents would find out and they'd be like, what? I would never authorize this. And they would go to the credit card companies and the credit card companies would go, yeah, fair point, and charge it back. And Facebook was made like a decision that rather than make sure that people actually wanted to spend the money that they were spending, they would just encourage the game vendors to keep on, you know, bringing in these kids, encouraging the kids to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars. And then, hey, if there's a 9% chargeback rate, we still get to keep the other 91%. Wow. And that's 18 times the normal rate. Wow. I'm glad that hasn't happened to us at the Peck House household where we got surprise charges. You just, just, I have one word of advice for all Slate Money listeners. This is financial advice. Don't link your credit card to your Facebook account. Yeah, I mean, why? <laughs> just good life advice. Please, I mean, please like, don't do that. Yes, good advice. Also, the other piece of advice I have for everyone 
it, not all credit cards have them, but many do now. Virtual credit card numbers are wonderful things. And they're just single-use credit card numbers. If you do want to buy something connected to Facebook, then go ahead and use a single-use credit card number, which you can generate online rather than your actual credit card number, because then it can't be reused. Emily, what's your number? My number is also, well, my number is 8.99%. That's very, very close. close to your number. Oh. So I just had a little panic attack that it was going to be the same. But it's not. 8.99% is the interest rate on these so-called shutdown loans offered by the Commerce Department Credit Union. And this is interesting because yesterday the Commerce uh, Secretary, Wilbur Ross. Ross, perhaps the worst billionaire of them all, <laughs> if he even is a billionaire. I think he's a fake billionaire went on CNBC and, I mean, you cannot make this up. He went on CNBC and this like deadpan Wilbur Ross face just said, I don't understand why these government workers, you know, they're not getting paid and they're going to um, food pantries. Like, I don't understand. They can just get loans. The people can just eat cake. They can just get these loans. They're very low interest loans. He, he, and, and this is the other great thing. Right? <laughs> we're, we're coming up on roughly $10,000 or so on average that people have not been paid. It's real money. Mm-hmm. And Wilbur Ross has this idea that, well, I mean, the government's going to wind up paying that money eventually, so you can just borrow against that almost certain future repayment. It doesn't work nope. that way. And he's like, well, there are ads all over the place. Well, yes, if you actually look at what the ads say, they're like, we will loan you up to one paycheck, whatever your last paycheck yeah. was. Whatever your, The federal government workers get paid every two weeks. They're mm-hmm. not being paid $10,000 every two weeks. And also this doesn't account for all of the contractors who are never probably going to make that money um, again. And I mean, and there is interest to pay and not everyone can afford to pay that interest. You know, um, this... Anyway, the other thing... um, some of the credit unions are offering 0% loans if you pay them back within 60 days. But not for the entire amount that you haven't been paid. Just uh, just, yes. just up to like up to a certain a amount. Certain am- amount. And, and there was one credit union that spoke to the Times that said, um, because they're not getting direct deposits from the government workers who aren't getting paid, they're actually running out of money. And yet we think our government is going to be able to use our tax dollars super efficiently in the future. I mean, that is a very but, fair point. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, but I mean, uh, in in terms of like the like the the ripple effects of the shutdown, yeah, um, there are a whole bunch of credit unions for federal employees, and those credit unions have lost you know yeah. cash flow that you know basically they have counted on for decades. Yeah, they're gonna. The guy said he's gonna. They're gonna have to borrow a lot more money than they had ever thought they would. Yeah. So if you are a credit union, then yes, as per Wilbur Ross, you can go out into the markets and borrow against future cash flows. On the other hand, if you're an individual, you can see why you might like some free food right now. Anna. Okay. My number is 3.5%. My number's a little lame this week. I apologize. It was a busy week. Um, This is the IMF global growth forecast, which they um, reduced. And and I think this is significant thinking moving forward because it's not just because of the U.S. trade spat with China, although that's part of it, but it's also looking at significant slowdown in Europe, especially in Germany, kind of consumer sentiment throughout all of Europe. And then also now we are, you know, there's more and more concern about this continued growth in the U.S. because right now we are still a bit of an outlier. And so I, I just think that this is actually like, important. And also because the IMF tends to not be super pessimistic. So things may not be fantastic in the upcoming years. That's all I'm saying. Well, it's, it's, stick with us. We'll it's help been many through. years of 
this like you know growth. Yeah, everyone like all of the all of the surveys. If you if you survey, especially Americans, they all expect you know recessions and contractions. Everyone's like this. You know, no one's very optimistic about the future anymore. That's I guess that also happens when the there's show. a when there's a shutdown. So yeah, let's let's end the show with a Slate Plus segment. If you guys are um, Slate Plus listeners, then hang hang around for that. Otherwise. Many thanks for listening. Many thanks to Max Jacobs for producing. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.